this morning we're going to be in John chapter 15, I've already mentioned, uh, unpacking an iconic passage, one of the truly iconic passages about Christian growth. We're in the middle of this long section of teaching from Jesus to his disciples the night before he was to be killed. Jesus is opening up his own heart to them. He is helping them to see what it's going to mean to follow him once he's gone, once they are representing him in the world. And now he's come to a section where he talks about what it's going to take for them to bear fruit. The passage we looked at last week, John chapter 14, we, we, we saw something very similar to what we're going to see today. An expectation that to be with Jesus is to bear fruit. That being with Jesus comes with power. That when you're with him, he gives you what you need to thrive. So there's no such thing as someone who is with Jesus remaining what they once were. We talked about that last week with the promise of God's spirit. John chapter 14. Same theme comes to us today in John chapter 15, but with a different image. It's an image of unmistakable power. It's an image that has long roots, deep roots back in the Old Testament. And it's an image that even though we don't live in a, in a grape-growing, wine-producing society here in Nashville, we can still understand and connect with. It's an image of the vine and its branches, of the vine as the key to growth for any branch and as, and staying connected to that vine being the only hope that any individual branch has of bearing any sort of fruit. Any branch becoming what that branch is meant to be hinges on that branch's connection to the vine. Jesus paints a stark picture here. There's no room here for apathy. Those who are with Jesus, those who are plugged into him, like branches into a vine, every single one of them, bears fruit. Those who are not plugged into Jesus, those who are not with him, they don't bear fruit. In fact, they're good for nothing more than kindling for a fire, is Jesus' image. Dead, withered branches that are tossed onto the fire heap. It's one or the other. It's with Jesus and bearing fruit. It's not with Jesus and drying up. As with last week, this news that comes to us in John 15, it's challenging news to those who are comfortable, to those who aren't looking for change. But it is sweet relief to those who know that they need to grow, but don't have the power to grow by themselves. This passage will be uncomfortable to you to whatever extent you don't want your life to be different than what it is. But this passage will be sweet relief to you, to whatever extent you know you need help. You know you want to change, but know that you can't by yourself. Jesus introduces the the vine and the branches analogy in verses 1 to 6. And then in the next section that we're going to cover today, verses 7 to 17, he unpacks it. He sort of preaches on his own illustration. So we're going to be drawing from both of those to unpack this this beautiful passage in two steps. I want to cover what does it mean to abide in him? That's what he says is the key to growth, abiding in him. So what does that even mean? And then what does it mean to bear fruit? What is this fruit that we should expect if we are abiding in him? Those two steps. Abide in me which is how growth happens, 
and bear fruit, which is what growth looks like. Now, I want to start by reading the whole passage together. So I'm going to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 of John chapter 15. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. First thing I want us to unpack together is what it means to abide in Jesus. Abide in me. This is how growth happens. That much is clear. What does it look like? Did you notice uh, the first verse in chapter 15? Jesus says, I am the true vine. To say something like that implies that there's some other sort of vine out there, right? He's com- it's almost a, a comparative statement. It has to be. True as opposed to what? To false, to, to incomplete, to lifeless. And sure enough... When Jesus says, I am the true vine, what he's doing here is something we've seen him do several other times in, this, in, in the book of John. He is saying, he's taking some theme from the Old Testament, from the scriptures of the Jewish people that he came to, and he is saying, what that theme was really about was me. In this case, he's taking an image that was once applied to Israel. Israel was referred to as God's vine in several places. One example is in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 5. Though in that, in that section, it was not a good thing. In Isaiah 5, 
the Lord refers to his people Israel as a vine that he had cultivated, that he had put into wonderful conditions, that he had given everything they needed to live, but that had withered and died. A vine that had not borne good fruit, but gone wild. It was his image for what his people had become before he was to send them into captivity. Before he was to send the one who would redeem them and make them new. And now Jesus, coming to those people, speaking to his followers, says, I am the true vine. They were a vine, a vine that was lifeless. Now I am here to be the vine that gives them and you life. Jesus is promising to give the life that was lacking before. To be the energy source for the growth of his people. What more could God do? That's what Isaiah 5 had asked. What more could I do to cultivate this vine? And John 15, he answers his own question. I could come in and be that vine. I could come and be the life of my people. What Jesus tells them here in verses 1 to 6 is that as the vine into which these branches plug, he has created an absolute and invariable connection between being in Jesus and growing as a Christian. And this comes out most clearly in verses 4 to 6. point is, when Jesus has the vine, with him as the life source, it's no longer calling on his people to have life in themselves, but a promise that they will have life, they will bear fruit because they're in him, and he's life. There's an unbreakable connection between being with Jesus and bearing fruit. Now, I want you to see that in verses 4 to 6 especially. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus says. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's one side of the equation. Can't do anything if you're not plugged into the vine. There is no life source for you. Otherwise, not plugged into the vine, without a life source coming to you from that vine, you wither and you die. We had this plant on our porch, this little, in this little pot, a little planter. I think they're called succulents. They're, little, they're kind of compact near the surface of the ground, really thick, lush green leaves. And, um, and for a while, it looked like it was thriving. Uh, but we started to notice every now and then that like, one or two branches would, would start to change their color. We started to go over and fill it. It's all kind of compact and close to the ground, so... It's not, like there's, it's not like a tree with branches that could just fall off. We go over there and start to play with it, and we realize, oh, these, these leaves are broken off. These stalks are no longer connected to the, to, the, to the root. A couple weeks later, same thing, another section of it. Looked good from a distance to the eye, but eventually started to notice some changes in its color. We figured out that our two-year-old, when we weren't looking, had been going over there and just breaking it, just breaking off the little, the little leaves, leaving them right there where they were, plant looks fine for a little while, but eventually starts to show its true colors, right? Disconnected from the, from the roots, from the source of life, those leaves had no hope. They were dead in the water. Jesus is saying the same thing to his followers. You get away from me, it might look okay for a while, but eventually it's gonna, your, 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 your true nature is going to show itself. 
You're going to wither. You're going to die. That's an invariable connection. To be disconnected from the vine is to be dead. But the other side, that's one side of uh, of the picture Jesus is drawing. The other side is just as invariable, just as absolute. If you're plugged into me, you will bear fruit. That's what he says in verse 6. Excuse me, in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, no hope for any fruit. In me, guaranteed fruit. It's either or. It's absolute. To be with Jesus is to bear fruit. Makes growth inevitable. So what does it mean to abide in him? Everything hinges there, doesn't it? If it's an invariable connection, if all of us want to see some growth in our lives, if we want to see some change, we want to start connecting with the things Jesus told us would be ours if we were in him, we need to know what does it look like to abide in Jesus because that's the whole ball game. Jesus tells us in a couple of key details. I got some good help this week uh, from a book by John Piper, who's a pastor up in, in Minnesota. He wrote this book called What Jesus Demands from the World. It's, a, it's an excellent book, lots of great short chapters, great for devotional reading. What he does is he takes everything Jesus tells us to do out of the New Testament, and he writes a chapter about them. All of Jesus' demands. I forget how many, but he numbers them all. Um, so it's, it's a great way to see what it looks like to follow Jesus from Jesus' own mouth. And he's got a chapter in there on Jesus' command to abide in him. And what he notices there is that there are two details, two key details in this passage that help us see what it is to abide in him and he in us. He makes a lot out of, the, out of what it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't say, keep my commandments so that you'll abide in me. You better obey me so that you can abide in me. That's, it's, it's the other way around. Abide in me and you will keep my commandments. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. The commandments are the fruit, okay? So what does it mean to abide in him? Two details. Here's the first one. Jesus says to abide in his love. Notice a pattern here in verses 4 and 5. We're to abide in him. He's to abide in us. Verse 9, he helps us see what it means to abide in him by swapping out abide in him for abide in his love. He's told us to abide in him. That's the key to bearing fruit. Verse 9 says, abide in my love. Same phrase, different object. What it means, first detail, what it means to abide in Jesus is to abide in his love. And here's what I think he's getting at. I think he's getting at something that he's been talking about for the last couple of chapters. Jesus has been referring to practical things like how to serve one another, that Jesus' followers are going to do like Jesus did and take up the towel and the basin and wash each other's feet. In other words, they'll do anything that's needed. There is nothing they're unwilling to do for each other. They do that for each other because a servant's not greater than his master and their master had done that for them. Then later on in John 13, he says, love each other as I have loved you. That's a new commandment I'm giving you. It's always been true that you're supposed to love each other, but now I am showing you more clearly than anyone has ever seen before what love looks like. Look at me, look what I've done for you, then go do it for each other. Jesus keeps referring to his own love for his followers as if it will be the glasses that they use to see everything else. 
He's always referring back to, as I have loved you. That's supposed to always be in their mind. It's supposed to color everything else about what they experience, how they relate to each other, how they experience the things that happen to them. Always have it in their mind. Think of yourself, think of your mind and your heart, of how you experience things, of what you're hoping to get out of life, of what you do with yourself day in and day out. Think of you as a big juicy steak and think of Jesus' love as a big bowl of delicious marinade, right? And you just sit in it. You abide in it and it seeps into you and it changes you in something about your character. I don't know if that one works for you. I was hungry when I was writing that section of my, of my, uh, of my sermon. Jesus wants him to be thinking on his love and savoring his love and learning to see things through his love. Here's how Piper puts it. Abiding in his love means continuing to believe moment by moment that we are loved. Continuing to believe moment by moment that we are loved. Of course, that starts by thinking long and hard about what Jesus has done to love us. It starts with what Jesus is building to here, with what's about to happen to him on the next day, with what he's referring to in verse 13, when he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus expects them and us to be marinating in the fact that he gave his life for us, that he stopped at nothing to give us what no one else could, to give us what, apart from which, we would, we would be branches cut off, withering, dying, ready to be burned. He expects us to think long and hard about the promise that even though we were sinners who had made war with God, He has come to us in Jesus to make peace with us. That even though we were guilty, even though we deserved to be judged, He has put Himself in our place, taken what we owed onto Himself, and made it so that we can be free. Jesus has loved us at the cost of His own life. And what what shows up in our fruit is just how much we've been abiding in that promise. Once the context is in place, once what we've got as our marinade or as our glasses for seeing everything, fill in your own analogy. Once we've got that in place as Jesus and His life-giving love for us, then, then we go to war in our daily lives Experiencing all the things we wish weren't what they were. Right? All of us wish certain things about our lives were different. Jesus expects us to grow and bear fruit despite the things that are hard because we're abiding in his love and it is shaping how we experience the things that are hard. We're supposed to remember, go back to Piper's phrase, moment by moment, that we are loved. We're supposed to take the good things in our life as evidence that we have a father who wouldn't hold back any good gift from his children. God is the one who created this incredible day and gave it to you as a present. We're supposed to remember in the hard things that Jesus loved his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, 
And because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. When pain comes, we remember we are loved. This pain is the path of love. We remember when we are exhausted by our children that we are loved well by Jesus. When we're unproductive in our work, that we're loved well by Jesus. When we're disappointing to somebody we had hoped to please, we remember we're loved well by Jesus. When we are disappointed by someone else upon whom we had depended, we remember we don't need another Jesus. We have one already, and He loves us. When we're alone and lonely, we remember that we are loved well by Jesus who came to us, who made a covenant with us that promises us we'll never be abandoned. When we're unable to look at the future we hope for and make it real, we remember that come what may, we are loved by Jesus. That's what it is to abide in His love. That's what it is to have a life in yourself that will bear fruit. That's the first detail. What does it mean to abide in Him? It means, according to verse 9, abide in my love. But there's another detail. The next thing is, to abide in Him is to have His Word abide in you. Again, go back to that pattern. Verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. What does that mean? Then look ahead to verse 7. Same thing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Oh, He changed it. He changed it because he wants to give us a little more detail about what it means for him to abide in us. What does it mean to have Jesus in you? It's kind of a strange thought. Strange because he was another human being. Strange because he was 2,000 years ago and we haven't ever seen him with our own eyes. What does it mean to have Jesus in me? If I want to be connected to the vine and bear fruit, I need to know what that means. And I think verse 7 is telling us exactly what it means. If you want to abide in Jesus and have Jesus abide in you, what you've got to do is abide in his words. You've got to have his words abiding in you. You've got to run to him where he is still accessible to us today. And friends, he is just as accessible to you today as he was to anyone who lived after these disciples. We're in the same footing as people who lived 10 years after Jesus had died. We have his words. They've been enough for his followers for 2,000 years and they will be enough for you if you run to them, if you get them into yourself, if you put them into your mind so that they come to you when you need them. It's trusting the truth of what Jesus has told us, of what He's promised us. Abiding, having His words abide in us is, is looking through His words to the things that He said He will do and trusting them. It's looking ahead in light of what he has said. So I think maybe one difference here to help the two things that we're bringing to the surface about abiding with him stand out a little better. Abiding in his love is latching on to what we know he has done for us. It's taking the message of the cross, promise that God has come to us to do everything necessary for us to have peace and joy with God. He has loved us to the end. We want to abide in that love, that past love. Then in addition to that, in addition to that proof of his love in what he's done for us, what we have are a set of words that he's given to us. He's told us who he is. He's told us what he will do. 
He's told us what God is like and what God wants from us. He has told us everything we need for life and godliness, for a faith that holds on through hard times for him to come again. We have his words about what he will do and about how we're to live in the meantime. So we've got to abide in his love, what he has done, and then we've also got to have his words abiding in us, thinking always on what he's told us is true and real, what he expects from us, what he'll do for us. We want those always in our minds, always in our hearts, so that we experience everything else through those words. That's what it is to abide in him, to abide in his love and to have his words abiding in you. When you abide in Jesus, when you're plugged into that life-giving vine, when his love and his word shapes how you interact with everything about you, here's what I guarantee you will happen. You will bear fruit. There's not an if. These words, this love, don't provide favorable conditions in which it's possible for you to grow. These things guarantee your growth. That's what we want to unpack together now. The second theme here that we want to unpack, we've seen a little more about what it is to abide in him. Now we want to understand a little more about what it is that, that he means by bear fruit. What sort of fruit will we bear? What does growth look like? One thing you've got to notice here at the top is that Jesus isn't so much commanding us to bear fruit. He isn't so much trying to get you charged up so that you can rush out and go take the world for Jesus, Right? He's not trying to inspire you to go and work harder. What he's telling you is something that will happen. What he's doing is making you a promise. You abide in me and you will bear much fruit. He's not calling you to pad your CV of accomplishments. What he's describing here when he describes the fruit is less like a to-do list of responsibilities or duties than it is like a list of promises. Things that he'll give us in our lives when we're abiding in his love, when his words are abiding in us. I want to highlight three of them for you. Okay, Three things in our text this morning that will be true in the lives of those who are abiding in the vine. It shows up in three ways. Here's the first one. What growth looks like. What, what is promised to us if we abide as a result of our abiding in Jesus is power. Power. Life-transforming, world-creating power. That's in verse 7. We read it earlier. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done. It's not the first time we've seen this promise. It came up in chapter 14 as well. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, when you're plugged into the vine, when my life becomes your life, you will enjoy access to the one who knows all things, to the one who holds all things in his hands, to the one who loves you above all things at the cost of his own son. Ask of this one who knows all things, who is powerful above all things, and who loves you above all things. Ask this one whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And I know what you're thinking. 
There's not one of us who's ever read this passage and not had problems. What we think is what? I've tried it. It didn't work. I've had lots of unanswered prayers. We can think of the promise as unrealistic. Maybe we go from unrealistic to guilt, right? Well, he says it'll work if I'm abiding in him. So what that means is I'm not abiding in him like I should be. I'm the problem. Failed again. Even fail at asking for help. Abiding, this call to abide can become more like a duty. And the the power source we tap into as some sort of reward. Just one more work to perform. Maybe pulling from an earlier promise. The, the, the first time in, in chapter 14 where Jesus talked about asking what you wish and promised it will be done. He says there, it's when you ask for something in my name. So maybe we think, I've just got the magical incantation wrong, right? I just didn't say it the right way. Didn't say the right words. Didn't say them with the right t- intonation. Friends, this is not a promise that we'll ever have God under our control. It's not a promise that he will do our bidding. It would be as unloving of him to give us whatever we ask for as it would be if I were to give my children full access to my resources to do whatever they want with them. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean that God will just do our bidding, if we can ask whatever we wish, and it will be done for us, what is this power that verse 7 says is a fruit of, bearing, of, of abiding in the vine? I think, I think this connection to abiding is the key. When we abide in the vine, which is to say, when we're marinating in Jesus' love for us, and when we're fixated on his words to us, then we savor his love, we trust his promises, and over time we come to want what he wants. We know that we aren't sufficient on our own. And the natural reaction of one who knows they're not sufficient and who wants what Jesus wants will be to ask the one who came for us, the one who loves us, the one whose power is unmatched and unlimited. Prayer is always an admission of our helplessness on one side, connected to the promise of God's abiding love on the other side. It's our helplessness and insufficiency combined with a confidence in His disposition towards us as one who loves His children. What could keep us from asking of Him? What keeps you of asking help from somebody else in your life? Chances are it's one of three things. Maybe you don't ask a friend for help because you don't think that friend wants to hear it. You don't think, maybe you think they're tired out of you and your problems. Or so overwhelmed by their own 
problems, that they can't handle yours too. So you don't ask them for help. Maybe you doubt their love. Maybe a second reason we don't ask is that we don't think the person can do anything. We just don't trust their power. I'm not going to ask you because I already know what the answer will be. You may want to do it, but you can't fix it. Or maybe a third reason we don't ask often. I don't ask because I don't want to need help. I don't want to need somebody else to do for me what I want to be able to do for myself. Maybe I don't trust their love for me. Maybe I don't trust that they have power to do anything. Maybe I just don't want to need them. And so I don't ask. And we've got to overcome those same barriers in our prayer. And abiding in Jesus is the key. This is why the promise of prayer is connected to the promise or the call to abide in Him. It's when we savor His love, when we think about what He has done to redeem us. And it's when we connect with His promises, what He has said He will do for us, that we're driven to Him like a father is, as, as a father who, who loves His children and wants to give them whatever they need. We're driven to Him with the same reflexive attention that a, a, a small child gives to its parents when it knows that it needs something. Here's, here's what Piper, here's the way he puts it. There is a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus well and not asking much from him. A failure in our prayer life is generally a failure to know Jesus. I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Failure in prayer is generally connected to a failure to know him. To know that his love drove him to the cross, that his power brought the world into being, that you are nothing on your own apart from the vine. When we know Jesus, when we know who he is and how he feels towards us, then asking anything is something we should connect with immediately. And we can trust him to sort out the will be done for you part. Right? That's a problem that we can't fully get to the end of. It says we can ask anything and anything will be done. We know that's not true in an absolute sense. We know Jesus meant something true by it. Not exactly clear what. But here's what he does say. And here's what is true for you today. Whatever it is that you think you need, whether it's right or not, just go ahead and ask him for it. He loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you abiding with him in the uncertainties of your life. He wants you bringing your needs to him. There is no reason you should ever not ask Jesus for something. Let him sort out whether it's best to give you what you're asking for. He knows best. He loves you. He will give you what you need. That's the first fruit that we bear when we're abiding in him. I think we have access to this power and we will ask him for things. There's another fruit, though. This one comes out in verse 11. Jesus has been talking about vines, about branches, about bearing fruit, about the fact that when we connect with him, our lives will be different, we'll grow, we'll change, we'll bear fruit. And he says in verse 11 that these things, all this stuff about vines and branches and fruit, I've spoken these things to you, that my joy may be in you, 
and that your joy may be full. What does Jesus want for you? What does he promise to you if you abide in him? He promises you a full and lasting joy. Everything he said is aimed at that. He doesn't promise you that you'll have everything you could ever want. He doesn't promise you a life of ease and plenty. I mean, after all, he's speaking here to a group of people that are mostly going to be killed because of their connection to Jesus. Almost everybody in the room that night, they're going to lose their heads, sometimes literally, because of Jesus. What he promises them, though, is that they will have his joy. That they will have in themselves his own joy. A joy that carried him to the cross. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And you will have that joy. A cross carrying joy that nothing can take away if you abide in the vine. Certainly there's talk about obedience and commandments. Certainly, there is a loss of individual control that Jesus is implying here. If you're with me, then you take your life from me, and it is aimed by me. It is not your own. And to our ears, that can sound a whole lot like bondage. But don't let Jesus call here for obedience. Be confused in your mind for the obedience of slavery, as if as if it is an obedience induced by a gun to the head. No, Jesus wants to give you joy. He wants you living for Him because it's what you want, because it is life to you, because it gets you out of the bed in the morning. He wants to give you joy. He wants you to have, to use some of the earlier images He's given us through through John, He wants you to have water that you can drink and never be thirsty again. It's chapter 4. He wants to give you living water that won't disappoint you or run dry. He wants you to know his joy. He wants to feed you with himself so that you'll never be hungry again. That's chapter 6. He wants you to know his joy and to know it fully. He wants you believing in him and not being troubled in your heart. That's chapter 14. He wants you to know his joy even when everything else in your life is turning upside down. And you will know it. You will have it. That's a promise. If you abide in the vine, that is the fruit you'll bear. Here's the last fruit. This is the biggest one in Jesus' mind as as he's speaking here. The last fruit of abiding in the vine is love. You will know his love as your own. He's been building towards this theme all through the text. It's exactly what he had in mind back in chapter 13 when he said, As I have loved you, so love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's my mark. I'm putting it on you. Love one another. Comes back to it again here in chapter 15. He boils down what it means to live for Jesus into that central command. Love one another. Did you notice how often he's talking about his commandments here in this passage? He talks about it in, for example, uh, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I keep my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
And then it makes you wonder, what are his commandments? What am I supposed to be doing that shows I'm abiding in his love? What are Jesus' commandments? Verse 12 says, this is my commandment. Let me boil them all down for you. All of them are encompassed here. Love one another as I have loved you. Love for each other is the primary fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus and having him abide in us. Love for each other is the main way to tell that we are in Jesus. Love for each other, a radical love for each other, a self-denying, joyful love for each other is the best way to glorify the Father. All of it comes together here. When we think of commands, we think of things like don't steal, don't gossip, don't commit adultery. Jesus did give lots of commands like that. Read the Sermon on the Mount, it's full of them in Matthew 5 to 7, full of commands like that. I think John can I think John can boil them all down here because ultimately those, those commands are rooted in whether or not we love each other. You don't love someone well and gossip about them. You don't love someone and steal from them. You don't love someone and act unfaithfully to them. It's inconsistent with loving them well. So, so someone's quoted Augustine, uh, St. Augustine boiled it down in his commentary on 1 John to this. Here's your maxim for life. Write it somewhere. Remind yourself of it. Love and do what you will. There it is. As long as you're loving each other, do what you want. Jesus' commands aren't that complicated. His command is to love one another. It all trickles down from there. And it is the fruit that you will bear to His glory if you're connected to His love and connected to His words. Love for each other is the effect of taking on His love as ours. It's what glorifies the Father because it's the Father who has removed our need to, to be suspicious of each other, compete with each other, to contrast and compare ourselves to each other. It's His love for us that enables us to give all of our lives to each other. Jesus says, greater love has no one than the one who lays down his life for his friends. But guys, most of you aren't going to need to die for your friends. You're going to need to live for them. You're going to need to live for them, and that can feel harder sometimes. Does that feel like too much for you? To live with your whole life for someone else as, a, as the fruit of being connected to Jesus. Well, it, it is too much for you. It is. But not if you abide in Him. If you abide in Him, this kind of love, this Love that lays down all of life, that is precisely the fruit that you'll bear. It's the fruit that you'll bear with Jesus' joy in you. Loving others when it's hard, not because you sort of grin and bear it, but because it's what you want. Because you actually enjoy it. Because it gives you pleasure to see their needs met. It's the kind of fruit that comes when His power is at work in you. When you can go to the Father to ask Him for anything that you need. And know that when you're abiding in Jesus, He hears you and will do it for you.
Apart from him, we can do nothing. But joined to this vine, there is life. So we go to bear fruit. Father, we want to bear fruit that remains. That's what Jesus called us to here. A life of bearing fruit that remains. What hope do we have for this kind of fruit? Apart from Jesus and His power, His love, and His access to Your throne. We come to You through Him now, asking You for what we want. What we want is to abide in Him more fully so that His life becomes ours, so that His love shapes our view, so that His words shape our ambitions. We want to abide in Him so that we can bear fruit. We want to love each other well. We want to know of His joy. We want to claim the power that He has offered to us in coming to you with whatever we need. We want a life that glorifies you as the giver of all our fruit. Help us, Father, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.